Do you have a tribe of dyslexics within your family? Or can you trace dyslexia through your family tree? Well, today's guest speaker has done just that. Dr Judith Hudson has been studying intergenerational dyslexia through her work in Tasmania. Judith has spent over 30 years in the field of special education as an advocate for young people with developmental disorders such as dyslexia, dyspraxia and ADHD. She's a teacher, a psychologist, researcher and a writer in Australia and the UK, an educational ambassador and also a dyslexic ambassador to Square Peg's Dyslexic Support Group in Tasmania. Judith also has a husband and a grandson who are both very successful dyslexics. She works and shares her time between Australia and Wales in the UK. Welcome to the show, Judith. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so pleased to have you on the show today, Judith, as I'm personally fascinated with the intergenerational dyslexia as there are three generations within my family that have dyslexia, which we will get into discussing in a little bit. But first of all, um, would you be able to talk to us a little bit about the field of special special education and how you got involved in working in this space originally? Okay. Well, I came to education late. Um, I did two degrees when I was in my late 30s, education and one in psychology. And by the time I'd finished, um, although I was trained to be uh, environmental scientist, um, (laughs) the only job I could get was teaching children with special educational needs. And this was in 1981 when the the UK was undergoing a big revolution. Um, They'd had a survey done and um, a report came out with how badly we were serving these children, putting them in special schools and, and sort of shutting kids away. And we've got to move more towards the uh, integration model. So this new label came out, special education. Uh, and I became a special education needs teacher to a school down in Kent where we had um, 340 students ranging from um, grade nine to grade 11. Uh, at that time, I was working for an authority in the south of England who were quite wealthy and had lots of courses which could go on. So not knowing a great deal about special education needs because that hadn't been my subject, I went on a lot of courses and they had just come up with this wonderful new thing to describe a reading difficulty and it was called dyslexia. And that was the first time I'd actually heard the D word. Um, At that time, children were identified as having reading problems and there was just a generic term. They were slow readers or poor readers or poor decoders, whatever. But then they started to identify a certain group that had certain behaviours that were in common um, and these fitted a profile that was under the label of dyslexia. Uh, It was a revolution. And in about five years, it had spread throughout the country. Um, Dyslexia was being talked about and some were denying it and some were saying, well, it sounds quite sensible. Um, And the debate was raging. And then it sort of added up to the economics of it all that the, um, hang on, once you give somebody a, a label of dyslexia, you've got to do something about it. So it suddenly changed from dyslexia to specific learning difficulties. By that time, I'd got myself into another course uh, and I was studying 
dyslexia as a, a special educational need, but at the same time also looking at a wide range of special needs. So I worked within rural schools in um, Herefordshire and in Wales, uh, working with children who had specific language and specific reading difficulties, doing the assessments on them and devising programmes, then did what we call the intervention teaching block. So we assessed the child, we wrote up a programme, we taught that programme and we worked with the class teacher to teach them how to teach the children in the way that they could learn. And that, by the, the end of the 90s, was sort of the model that was working here. They had appointed by this time another role in schools called the Special Educational Needs SENCO. Um, and the SENCO was one in every school. And they were responsible for coordinating and identifying children's needs. And I used to be doing the identification and working with the SENCOs in schools as well. Then I became a SENCO myself for a year because a school that was struggling, I was seconded to them um, and eventually stayed there till I retired. And at the same time, I'd been doing my master's with um, Professor Miles, uh, Tim Miles, who was a, a guru in um, terms of dyslexia here in the UK uh, and he supervised my master's research and he became one of my supervisors for um, my PhD and that's sort of in a, in a nutshell really, that's sort of how I became involved uh, it evolved rather than you know sort of it wasn't a conscious decision it just one thing led to another uh, uh, so I started studying this in 1981 and I still I'm fascinated by it now. And the more I know, the less I know. It's so frustrating. <laughs> so within the school system, do children have to be assessed by a educational psychologist or were you able to assess them for dyslexia yourself? Um, well, in those days, I was just a qualified specialist teacher. I'd done a specialist teacher course. Now, here in the UK, a specialist teacher courses, if you're registered and uh, successful on a, an accredited course, you have acceptance in terms of a professional standing to identify and assess children, uh, okay. especially for things like special arrangements and examinations. Um, and... If I think it was, it's probably more when you get to uh, adult 18 and onwards, colleges and further education or higher education, that's more where the psychologist kicks in. Although it is still acceptable to have an assessment done by a specialist teacher, providing they've got the right qualifications. It's well controlled. We have uh, the British Dyslexia Association and the um, PATOS, which is the Professional Association of Teachers of Specific Learning Difficulties. Um, they both are um, the accreditors of courses that uh, teachers can take. Right. And so you did all this work in dyslexia and then you happen to marry someone that was dyslexic and you have a grandson that was dyslexic. Did you know your husband was dyslexic when you married him or was that just a, a, well, he a uncanny, uncanny, uncanny chance? I don't know if that's the right word, but you know what I'm trying to say. A freak occurrence. <laughs> a freak occurrence. Well, it's strange. It's very strange, Shay, because I have a, a 
quite a circle of friends who are dyslexics and it seems to be almost a common attraction and a, I don't know whether it was conscious or unconscious but Duncan reckons he wasn't dyslexic till he met me so he's only been dyslexic for 37 years <laughs> my grandson my grandson we went all through his schooling with mum and I pursuing it through school you know this is not right this child and of course being a so-called expert his granny uh, probably be put people's backs up, uh, but Sam didn't get identified till he went on to um, education at 16. So he was almost 17 before he was actually recognised. Although we knew we'd known since he was little, he got he's very dyspraxic and he's certainly dyslexic. But uh, the school wouldn't accept it. They just kept saying he's a boy. Even when he was 15, you know, he's a boy and his spelling's awful and oh dear, oh dear. But no, they wouldn't accept that there's. Of course, if he bright you know why why it's just lazy if it's bright you know he can't spell he's just not paying attention but uh, and he's gone on he's actually written two novels under the name of Samuel L. Henton they are the weirdest weirdest novels they're science fiction <laughs> uh, a lot of made up uh, languages and countries and uh, very weird books but he has a, a following on his um, pages of about 65,000 so I mean there's wow. a lot of people out there that can relate to it. Yeah. Um, I started proofreading his, but I did the first one, and halfway through the second one, I thought, if he's going to make a career out of this, he's got to get himself another editor. <laughs> but I didn't understand the plots, you know. But uh, anyway, his reviews are good, so uh, now he's out of the navy. Perhaps he'll do some more. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, so it's interesting so it's that. It's interesting that even though the UK is so much further advanced than Australia in um, assessing and diagnosing and early intervention, yeah. that uh, you're saying before your son's in his early 20s and he still took them until he was 16 to be diagnosed. Yeah, yes. Oh, yes. And that happens. It happens quite a lot. It isn't necessarily the system's fault. A lot of places, yes, it is. Um, but in some cases, you know, they cope, they're managing uh, and will adapt to each of the sort of the transitions from primary into junior and junior into secondary education. But things could come to a head and, and sort of everything just goes scrambled when they get to a level that they can't cope with. I assessed a, a young man uh, last year who's nearly a second year medical student and had got that far through the system and it all just fell apart. Um, you know, so it, it, it isn't necessarily the school's fault. Not in all cases. There is there is room to blame sometimes the system, but also it can be that they've masked it so well as individuals and coped so well and developed strategies to cope that it doesn't get recognised. And we know how overworked teachers are. And, um, if they're coping but keeping their head down, they're not going to be drawing attention to it. So... Um, but I think Australia, it's moving faster now. I think in the last five years, I've noticed the change is greater um, than in the last 15, but still a long way to go. <laughs> yes, we talk about it a lot in a, um, a lot of our podcasts. So how did you yeah. end up um, working in Tasmania, of all places? Because we're about to be based in the UK, in Wales? Uh, 
a place called Prestine in Powys, Mid Wales, yes. Um, well, no coincidence, my um, best friend came on a teacher exchange to the Quaker School. She was at the um, Quaker School in um, York and swapped places with a teacher in the Friends School in Hobart. So they did a year exchange. So I came out to visit Jenny, <coughs> stayed for uh, two months. And at that time, I'd retired from teaching, but I'd started my PhD. <coughs> Excuse me. And I was also lecturing in higher education. So got involved at UTAS uh, in the psychology um, department, and they uh, allowed me to stay on as a, a visiting scholar for two months in working at, as their, at their university as a base. And that was the first connection. That was in 2004. We returned for a, a fellowship I got for looking at ADHD and specific difficulties in Australia in 2006, seven, and then in nine, oh, eight, I came, nine, 2009, I came looking at autism and got involved peripherally with, with dyslexia because at that time there was just nothing, nothing in Tasmania at all. That There was not a spelled, there was nowhere for people to go and sort of I, I didn't, I dabbled but there was nothing structurally in place and then in 2013 when I was there um, I heard about square pegs being formed uh, and in 2014, I, I joined them. My visas have varied along the way. Some, some are longer than others, so we've been able to spell quite long spells in Australia, and, and others we've had to leave every 90 days because we're only there as visitors. But we can go back, we can go back 24 hours later, but it does, yeah. it does interrupt things and it gets expensive. Anyway, I've, I got involved with the education faculty um, doing lectures on special needs and dyslexia. Um, uh, and but my involvement with um, square pegs meant that I could do a lot more getting into schools because um, I wasn't part of an education department. I wasn't part of, I was a guest of the university as an honorary. Uh, and it was, a, it was part of that wanting to involve myself with community engagement that sort of led to what I actually do now. But at the time it was just square pegs. Oh, at least somebody is saying something and doing something. There was two parents and stuff this group one very dyslexic with a dyslexic daughter and one with the dyslexic son and there was so much to do but they got so much energy and we got quite a sort of a strong group around us mostly parents um, I think I was the only one that wasn't a parent or had parental issues um, so again, I was I was just lucky that to be in the right place at the right time. And when you've spent your, your passion, your work in life, campaigning for something, and you find a, a niche like that, so I'm really, in a way, feel sorry for Tasmania because I do go on a bit. But <laughs> but they've made such strides. Square pegs have they really? Uh, We've uh, been sort of doing some reviews lately of how far we've got, and we've been into 47 schools. We've yeah. done um, talks with over 2,000 teachers. Um, we've run workshops. I've got a PhD student who's a wonderful 
school literacy teacher and we do workshops um, together when I'm over there uh, and those are really successful um, and just raising the profile as much as we can um, yeah. and dyslexia now is actually being spoken about there's still pockets because Tasmania has got rural dispersation just like Wales the schools are far apart from each other the communities um, but we're reaching out there um, this last session that I've been over in um, in Tassie I was able to work with the um, country schools up in um, Bos Bosworth, Bosworth. I can't remember the name now. So, uh, but uh, the, they made us very welcome, and we had we were expecting about twelve parents, and about forty parents and teachers came, and we we ended up instead of spending an hour, my husband and I, instead of leaving at four o'clock, we left at half past seven. <laughs> we had supper, we had talking to people, and talking to grandparents. There were quite a few grandparents that come along, um, and it was you know it's. It was just amazing to see the need and teachers that had come after teaching all day and had come, driven miles, miles to be there. And that, that sort of spurs you on to want to do more. Mm. Because the, if you were that committed, they deserved more information. They certainly deserve it. Yeah. But we've got um, multi-sensory learning um, uh, scholarships this year we've started. We've funded seven um, teachers to do the IMSL course uh, and they are sort of spreading the word on how to teach they're also doing a hundred hours committed teaching so we, we're getting that spreading further apart our field as well and they're passing on information to colleagues on how to teach multi-sensory teaching and it's 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 growing it's, it's exciting it's uh, and it's wonderful you've been able to join with Chatter Matters as well. The speech yes. speech is down there with Rosalie, who's wonderful. She and certainly is. Also, um, having Rufus Black now as the Vice Chancellor oh, of Tasmania. It was an absolute because, gift from heaven. I could not believe it when mm -hmm. we sort of, I was reading in, in uh, the Mercury and the newspaper in uh, Melbourne. I said, oh, look at this, look at this. We could have a dyslexic. Oh, fantastic. And he's become our patron, of course, yes. Yes, so I don't know if you heard our podcast that I did with him, um, but it was wonderful to talk to him about his um, lived experience. It was fantastic. Fantastic, yes. Yeah. Yes. So um, with the dyslexia within your family, is that um, from one generation to another, is that how you got involved in studying intergenerational dyslexia or is it from two separate sides of your family that it comes um, from? No, I think when I started doing assessments really um, and sort of started taking the family histories that you noticed there was a connection and I was so lucky with Professor Miles up at Bangor um, he was a, a great advocate and he'd been saying since the 1950s, you know, there's a common pattern, these children, there's, there's somebody else in the family. And of course, going back um, 1950, they were doing research 
and beginning to talk about it. And in the, by the time we'd reached the 2000s, this hereditary link had become confirmed. So no longer were we saying there might be a possibility that it runs in families. We now know that it does. Uh, and when I was doing my PhD research, I was using um, five local families in a, an area where the population is pretty staid. So they were going back. I met the, the not only with the parents, but the grandparents and, and in some the great-grandparents as well. And each of those had a history uh, so strong you couldn't ignore it. Um, and they could go back talking about uncles or aunts that, that couldn't read or whatever. It was generally uncles or cousins. Uh, yes, there were some aunts. Yes, there were some mothers. But more often than not, it was, it was coming through the male line. Um, and that was sort of quite exciting to see by the time I'd sort of got all the information. It was a, it was a, a side issue in terms of something that I hadn't intended to look at. But because it was coming out so pronounced in my data, I decided, you know, that we've got to start looking a bit further in, into what, what these families have got and sort of talking to them a bit more about it. Um, and I think it's, it's important that teachers believe and accept that it runs in families because that's the first place you start. Start looking, get a family history and don't necessarily take for granted that the mother says or the father says no, there's nobody else because when you start investigating there are people. I started my study with six families and the one um, student, the male, he was 13 and mum had said at the first interview, oh no, there's nobody else in the family, or oh, no, it's definitely not. It's, it's, yeah. And then found out three weeks down the line, uh, <clears throat> he came into the room when I was interviewing another boy, and they started sort of talking. I said, oh, you know each other. They said, yeah, we're cousins. Our dads are brothers. So you need to sort of start exploring the family histories and sort of getting clues as to, um, you know, which sides of the family come. Um, we have a lovely lady on uh, the Square Pegs board who has uh, three dyslexic children, a dyslexic husband and a dyslexic mother-in-law, but she's also got it on her side as well. Uh, and that, that, as she said, you know, sort of, I had to study it because there's so many of them. Um, mm. And she, she's doing great works as well with, as a multi-century teacher. Um, but it, it is a, a definite link. Is it on your side, on your mother's side or father's side? Or? Um, well, my dad hasn't been formally assessed, but we are pretty sure it comes from his side because he um, doesn't like to read. And he, from very early on, he struggled to read and he says that he, he um, really struggled at school. And he shows yeah. all the um, dyslexic strengths traits so he's extremely creative he's an amazing builder um so he shows a huge amount of characteristics so we're pretty sure it comes from his side we haven't we don't know whether any of his siblings it's come out in any of my cousins we don't speak to them enough yeah. to know but my one of my brothers has it um he was diagnosed after i was diagnosed because he was really struggling at school so when my yeah. mum found out I was, he was in early secondary school. So she went and got him assessed straight away and he was diagnosed. Unfortunately, yeah. it was too late for him. He disengaged with school. And so he left yeah. quite 
shortly after that, which was a real pity, but he did go into TAFE and got a trade. And so that was really good. He stuck that out and um, became a builder. And um, one of my nephews was diagnosed very early on, so in grade prep. Yes, yeah. So you can almost build, build a, a tree, can't you? If we, yeah, we can. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's really, to me, it's really fascinating um, to see in our family. And then my youngest brother happens to, his um, girlfriend is dyslexic. So uh-huh. really interesting as well because there's a big mix of us in our family. And so it's nice yeah. to have another girl that's dyslexic in our family because we get to have a good laugh together. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, and so she was diagnosed in year nine and um, had to move schools because of it. So it's oh, interesting good. hearing, yeah, they didn't want her to bring the school-level results down. Oh, oh that's, that's, that is a tragedy and it, mm. an illegal tragedy. It shouldn't be allowed to happen, but it does. It does. Mm. Uh, yeah. yeah. But um, she runs her own successful business now and she's one of our young ambassadors and she's doing, um, she's just wonderful. But, yeah, yeah, it's interesting in our family, the different stories, and but the struggles my nephews had and... You know, yes. the amount, it's just so expensive. Even when a child is diagnosed, the, you know, having speech therapy every week or having a tutor support in class, you know, it's so expensive for parents. It certainly is. Um, and, you know, for some parents, getting a diagnosis is too expensive. Yeah. Um, and this is something that Square Pegs are sort of seriously working towards, you know, how do we actually reach those people? Mm. Um can we support in part the, the cost of getting a diagnosis? Um, you can go to um, the psychology department of the University of Tasmania for an assessment, but there's a waiting list. They, they're assessing adults or children. There's a waiting list, so you could wait a couple of years for, mm-hmm. uh, to get it. And, and meanwhile, there's more and more damage being done. Yeah. So, I mean, that's how I was assessed was through uni, which I was really lucky because I was studying at the time, so it was a lot um, less expensive. But even through the foundation, we're looking at how do we lower the cost to have someone come and get assessed for us because we know it's a huge barrier. Even as an adult, it's still really expensive because the psychologist, it's expensive for them. It's so time-consuming to do assessments. And I even know as a speechy, I mean, it takes so much time. By the time you do the assessment and write the report, you understand why it costs so much. But it's such a big barrier for people. And so I've been looking at how at the foundation you can look at, you know, how do you subsidise it for people so that, you know, whether the workplace helps fund it or whether you're able to access grants to help subsidise it. It's such a big barrier when you know so many people are out there that, you know, if they could just get an assessment, it could answer so many questions for them. That's right. Absolutely, yes. It's, it's, I think it's interesting to see how universities are reacting in Australia. And, I mean, here, because we have the law on our side, we have to do certain things. We have to follow um, certain pathways. Um, 
an adult can have a, a diagnosis quite quickly in, once they start in university. Um, I heard last year about um, Kiel University up in Staffordshire that have a, a, a medical school that's a highly successful medical school um, and a third of their students are dyslexic. They've got the best dyslexic department for supporting dyslexic students through their medical degrees. Wow. And that was wonderful to hear. Mm. Um, I think, you know, sort of our universities have gone a long way down the road and, and that is a, a model that really must have happened. In, and I'm sure there are universities in Australia that are doing it, um, but we need more. Uh, yeah, we really need it on the MBS over here. I think that's, yeah. I mean, that's where the foundation, we really see our role is helping to advocate for neuropsychs and educational psychs to have that on the MBS billing so that, people can claim hardware back through Medicare. Yeah. I think that's one of the best ways for us to work um, across the country is to advocate for that change so yes. that it's more accessible for people. Yes, absolutely. Um, the sadness is, you know, sort of with the school system, we work hard to get kids to sort of become advocates for themselves and sort of make them confident mm -hmm. um, and to see that dyslexia, yes, it's a disability, but it's a learning difference primarily. Um, but then they get out into the, the real world and they've got to start saying they're disabled to get access to identification funding and whatever. Yeah. <clears throat> so having done one lot of 10 years of building up their confidence, they've then got to sign up to say that they are disabled people and, and that is a conflict. That is a tension there. It's a really interesting... <clears throat> Um, point you bring up and we've even been having that discussion at the foundation because I strongly advocate for that word at the moment because of everything you're saying because yeah. no one wants to use the word because we don't a lot of us don't see ourselves as disabled mm. but if you want to create change and you want to get people listening you need yeah. to use a strong word to be able to advocate yeah. for funding and for a seat at the table to talk about this issue so, and, but people don't want to use the word disability. I mean, we can't, we, I have a, the word dyslexia doesn't, isn't even on my report. It's a reading and writing disorder. So, yes. or yeah. in England, it's a specific learning difficulty. Yes. So there are so many different terms that we can use. And so I find it so frustrating because how can you go and advocate for something when you don't even have the right Name. At least yes. for autism, yeah. it's yeah, they don't even yeah. have Asperger's anymore. You're just on the spectrum yeah. of autism. Yes, yeah. and it's all it's, that's the way that dyslexia. <coughs> excuse me, dyslexia's got to go. But how do you how do you make that transition? And that's right. There are there are less people with autism. I think it's one in a two hundred that have autism versus one in ten that have dyslexia. So, I mean, our population is huge and the need to help people with dyslexia is huge, yet we can't even get... We're arguing amongst ourselves just around the terminology still. So That's I find right. it really hard. So I think we have to... For me, I have to use a hard word that makes... Yeah. that causes a conversation and gets people right. agitated. Yeah. Yes. So that at least, you know, we're, at least people are talking about it. 
That's right. Yes, yeah. That's one of the things that I sort of try and stress. We we've actually got um, a course running at the university, uh, educating students with dyslexia and learning difficulties, and and getting them the students to, on those courses to accept using the D word, um, and to actually becoming so well informed that if anybody challenges them, that they can show the case for this condition or disorder or whatever learning difficulty discipline there's a huge range of, of, of names out there that, and the nomenclature it really does confuse people mm. because are oh, you talking about the same thing if you're talking about a learning disability or an LD or a SPLD yeah. all these umbrella names you know just say it dyslexia you know mm. um, but it takes a lot of courage because they said if they go into back into schools using that word uh, their colleagues then get up you know sort of oh dyslexia and and we were there 15 years ago and we've moved on uh, yeah. and the dyslexia now is dyslexia and, and wonderful mm. you still got to have a disability when you're 16 that's <laughs> so, right and it doesn't go away. It's all, it's lifelong. It's there forever. And I think we're advocating so strongly for dyslexia, but there are so many people that have the dysgraphia and the dyscalculia that, you know, yes. we have that the mix of co-conditions that there are those other ones are getting forgotten and they all impact just as significantly on our day-to-day -day ability to function. Yes. So we're trying really hard to raise that awareness. Yes. It, I mean, it's, it's fantastic progress that they've now actually identified that, you know, these problems with dyslexia can spill over into your maths and dyscalculia. And wonderful that they've got all these names for these different areas. But if people see those as that disorder and dyslexia as that disorder, that's not helpful. No. <laughs> you, no, it's all embracing, and that's what—that's where you have to go. Yeah, for people to accept. It. <clears throat> Excuse me. So you um, have a couple of PhD students that are working in this space at the moment. I have indeed. I have um, actually three of my dyslexic, uh, three of my PhD students are dyslexic, ranging on different scales. Um, the most severe is. Um, a wonderful person he's a major amazing advocate um, and he's doing his PhD looking at uh, provision in Scotland and laws in Scotland and policy making in Scotland because Scotland do a lot for dyslexia uh, compared to New South Wales um, the population of the two I think there's a couple of million difference but looking at the geographical spread of New South Wales on a smaller scale in Scotland there's a lot of similarities he uses uh, speech to um, text to speech so he can hear what he wants read out to him. But as he said, he has to play things several times and over and over again. And it's very, very time consuming and it's not always accurate. Whereas if he's got somebody working with him who can read it and he gets to a bit where he doesn't understand, he can make ask him to go back uh, and go over that. And he, he cannot write, he cannot write coherently at all. Um, so having somebody to write his words has released the information he's got. He's in most phenomenal memory. The things that he's stored in his brain, 
it just never ceases to amaze me. But we work on um, a monthly meeting. Well, we're working fortnightly meetings at the moment. With he has a supervisor at Flinders, and he has me, uh, and he has his scribe. So we have our Skypes four ways, so that the uh, scribe is taking the the comments that he is is making, um, and then we have a summary at the end of it in writing for the three of us or two of us that want the, that information. Jim stores it all in his head. <laughs> yeah. he's, he, he's doing well. He's doing very well. Um, how did he access... The other one. Sorry, how Sorry. did he access his scribe? Was that just through his um, access and equitable... Ec, I can never get the word right. Access and equity. Yes. Is that the right he word? Did. Yes, he accessed him in the first instance when he was doing his master's at Macquarie. Um, so they've worked together through two of his master's degrees, uh, policy making and, and laws and um, social policy, all within that field. So they know how to work together well. Yeah. Um, but, it, but it was the innovation of... Uh, Macquarie in the first instance, I think, that, that gave him that access. But um, for Flinders to take him on, we tried several universities before we found one that would do so. Um, and they became the first university to ever do this. So that's a major step in the right direction. I think mm. South Australia are doing quite a, quite a lot in terms of dyslexia. Um, I first went to South Australia to a dyslexia conference in 2004 uh, on my first visit to Tasmania. I went over to Adelaide um, and there was sort of a lot going on then talking about, and my goodness me, it's grown since then. Um, they're a very forward thinking. They are the, f the first, I think, the first state to have a say yes to the phonics screening um, check, which is the first ones to do it this the end of this year. Um, and that would be a major step forward for the whole of Australia because it picks up struggling kids at such an early age that you can adapt your teaching and you can adapt things for them to, to actually bring them up so that they are at least coping with the acquiring literacy alongside their peers. But if you just ignore that, the differences are going to get wider and wider very, very soon. Um, and the damage is done to the social and emotional side of the child as well. Mm. Um, uh, one of the things that is, is sort of a, a major stumbling block with children with um, learning to read, dyslexic children learning to read, is this awareness of sounds within words and this, this um, phonological processing. And the phonics screener, it, it is not a test. It's not another uh, set of, of criteria like the, the NAP plan. It is a, a way of of seeing how children decode sounds at the end of a year of instruction. Um, and it's, it, it shows the teacher where they need to put in an intervention or where they need to adapt their teaching. It doesn't show up bad teaching or poor teaching and all sorts of things I've, I've heard thrown at the wall why they don't want it. It doesn't do anything but positive. It identifies the children who are struggling and it identifies them at a very early age. And the phonic screener is really a way to go forward. And so um, does it, does it, is um, the phonic screener across the whole of the UK? 
whole of England, uh, Scotland, um, Wales and uh, Northern Ireland have their own education systems, Mm -hmm. but it's certainly um, over the whole of England, yes. And they've been doing it now for about five years, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, It's... it's, It is showing improvements in reading, but marginal. But what it is showing is the teaching is improving, that that teachers feel more confident in the way they teach literacy. Mm. And that's a good step forward as well. Yeah. And so, um, (coughs) sorry, we digressed because we were talking about your PhD students because you said you've got (laughs) two other students who are excited to hear more about them. I'm being selfish on my podcast tonight because... (laughs) As my listeners know, I'm doing my PhD as well. So um, I'm just keen to know a little bit more. And for any other um, dyslexics or dysgraphics or dys- people with dyscalculia out there that are trying to do their um, any studies, really, um, to hear a little bit more about your students and if you've got any um, key suggestions that um, you've given your students that might help our listeners that might be studying um, out there at the moment. Okay. Um, well, one of my students is, is doing, um, comparing or try, hoping to compare uh, what goes on in schools these days compared to his days. Um, two of the three have got stories about their own experiences that are, are really very, very disturbing. Um, and it, it, they're both looking to see where change will come. Um, the biggest problem is with their time management uh, and certainly the one person is a very poor timekeeper in terms of every step we, we make she misses <laughs> but she's getting better um, supervision in terms of supervising it's you have to be very careful that it's not a constant nag it's that I'm trying to encourage I'm not condemning or making a judgment I really want them if I say I want this by a certain date I really do because for your benefit so to try and understand your supervisor's position but also to keep your supervisor informed if your supervisors know how you work what strategies you're using they'll appreciate why it takes so long to do something or why you go off at a tangent because of um, and it's the way the dyslexia brain works you know if they understand that uh, if they're aware of it so I'm not saying always bang on about well okay I can't do that because dyslexia that's not what I mean if you can inform them in a positive way that this is how I do something and although it would only take some people probably a week to do that it's going to take me two weeks and, and sort of negotiate your time management that way um, it's a it's really a, a, an agreement if you like but an under, agreement on based on understanding um, when I've got something sent to me in terms of um, grammar and uh, spelling checks that they've put something through the spell checker and the Grammarly um, and it's still sort of not coming out in the way they want it I don't mind changing things around but I have to have their confidence and trust 
that I'm not destroying their work. Um, I sent one piece of work back to somebody who rang me straight away and said, I'm failing this, aren't I failing? I'm wasting my time. And I, and I had done so much damage by being what I thought was helpful. It, it had to be worked out between us that this is what I was trying to do. I'm not, it's, but it doesn't say what I wanted it to say now. And it's, it's having that, mm. the key to sort of, well, no, it probably, it's there, the message is there, but it's now in a language that everybody's going to understand. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm very good, I'm very good at dyslexic spelling and, and, uh, and reading checks, because Duncan was um, uh, an examiner. He was a chemistry teacher, he's now retired, uh, and he's very happy about that. But he also um, used to mark exam papers for the examinations board. And what happened then was they started putting 5% of the marks could be deducted mm. um, for spelling and grammar. And as he said, you know, who am I to say it's spelled wrong? <laughs> so you, you get called in a bit. It is hard. Even I'm trying to write my um, speech for our gala in two weeks and I read it to my sister. She's like, oh, it's got to all be restructured. And I said, yes, but you can't take out this part part and this yeah. part and this part because this really means stuff to me and that's yes. the thing is when you send it off to people um yeah. I don't mind so much with my doctorate because I know it has to read a certain way but it's yeah. um when it's other work and people take away because you know what you want to want it to say in the meaning yes but it's just not articulated well and so you know that it <laughs> adds yes, yeah. yes, I know exactly what you mean. yeah yes. Yeah. It, it must be so frustrating for you, um, but stick at it, <laughs> stick at it. Um, yeah, it is, but it's, um, I, I'm learning now to say, no, you need to, or I'll go back if someone's re rewritten it and I really want that point to be in there, I'll go yeah. back and put it back in. Yes. <laughs> and that's what I'm just learning to do. I'll go back and put it back in and try and rework it so it makes sense. Sense, yes. And, yeah. But I'll go back and I'll put it back in how I want it. Watch it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <Stop> it. <laughs> so that's um, my problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, do you find it's easier to sort of express things in in face to face than it is to put a concept or, or a, something into writing? Yeah, I can't put it in writing. It can take me hours and hours and hours to try and put one sentence and yes. then I can explain it to someone and they can put it in words in a minute and I just find it so frustrating because I just think, why can't I just be like that? Yeah. So, oh. Yeah. No. It can, yeah, and it just takes, I find it more, it's just the time. It takes so much time to try and articulate sometimes one sentence or a paragraph because you're yeah. trying to find the right words or you've rewritten it so many times because you know exactly how you want to say it and it just doesn't come out right on paper. Yeah. And in the end, I normally have to call someone and I explain it to them and then they will say it in a way that I should write it. And then it just takes two minutes. Like I was writing my pamphlet to go out to the gala. It's our new DL flyer for what we're doing at the foundation and we're doing stuff on research. And I rang my content editor and said, no, you, that's not how, I, this is what it needs to say. And within two minutes, she'd rewritten it for me. 
but I just couldn't articulate it. But as soon as I said it to her, she said, oh, yeah, just say this. Yes. But I have to call her at 7.30 at night when it's her dinner time to say, I'm sorry, that's not what I was trying to say to you. It's this. And then she just fixes it in two minutes. And I just think it just takes everyone else so much time as well, which I feel bad then that I'm taking up other people's time. Time, yeah. But this is where a lot of problems lie in schools that teachers just don't understand that the, the energy that's going in. I mean, the processing you've just described, you know, it, if a teacher's saying, yes, but it was due to be handed in on Monday and it's now Friday, that doesn't help either, does it? No, yeah. and because we're disorganized anyway, yeah. like in our minds, and my dad's a really good example that you know, it takes him so much longer to do things, but we think we've got enough time. So we might in our brain have planned out everything to a T and think, okay, we're going to start it on this day because in our brain it's going to take X number of days to do it. But when we actually sit down to do it all, it actually takes so much longer. Yes. Yes. But in our brains, we've mapped it out and it makes a lot of sense. And we think, no, 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 it's going to work exactly how we planned it. But when you sit down, you go, actually, no, it's not. But you think you've done it right and you think you've planned it right. So that's frustrating as well because you've done the best thinking you've planned it out right and then it doesn't actually end up till the last hour going, but I I know I planned it, but it just hasn't, doesn't work. But this this is sort of, you know, speech to text and text to speech. It's a wonderful invention and I'm not sort of saying it isn't useful. It's extremely useful, especially for dyslexics, but it also highlights another problem. Um, that the structure of what you're saying doesn't <laughs> isn't right, you know, and it sometimes doesn't say what you thought it should have said, even though you dictated it or whatever. Yeah, um, and, and that all, takes time. You have to learn, and that, that takes time. Yes, mm, yeah. and you've got to build that in. If you're using text to speech to do your editing, you have to yeah. because it takes time. It's a slow system to proofread to you. Like for me, I have to. It would take at least, you know, five minutes a paragraph to listen to it, to see where the, because I can hear the mistakes when I, yeah. I can't see it, but I can hear it. Yeah, so then I've got to yeah. hear and see where it is because I've heard it. Then I've got to see where it is. Then I've got to go back and edit it. So if that's five minutes per paragraph, that's yeah. a lot of time. Yes, in a 2,000 word assignment. <laughs> yes, yes. So it's, um, it's a lot of planning and so... It, it might be that the person's done all the planning, but when you add up all that time, mm, it's, um, yeah. yeah. Do you do you use audio recording very much? Sort of audio, putting your ideas in by dictating them. I've the started to. If I'm going for a walk or something, and I come up with an idea, I'll record it, audio record it now. For yes. Pieces. Yeah. But it's yes. hard because I'm old school and I shouldn't say this because I'm. we're talking on podcasts all the time. We're talking about assistive technology and all the wonderful things out there. But because I think I got diagnosed late, I developed all my strategies. And so yes. when you've got strategies, you also have bad habits. Yes. Bad habits are hard to break. They certainly are, yes. Um. And my default <laughs> yeah. is my mum. <laughs> <laughs> oh, lovely. <laughs> so, yes. 
So it's um, it's learning to um, put all this wonderful technology in place because mm. I'm just so used to defaulting to human beings to help me and I'm very yeah. happy that I've been able to do that. I've got a great network of friends and family that support all the work I do. Yeah. Um, but I should be using technology a lot more than I do. Work I just haven't it. had anyone to show me, really. So you've got to well, work it out it, yourself. It, yes, I was going to say, um, Sam, my grandson, he, he sort of embraced technology by hit and miss. He, it's just trial and error. Uh, he does something and you say, well, okay, how do you do that? Well, I don't know, I just did it. <laughs> so he cannot tell you how he does things. Um, so using the technology is only useful to him in that way, but it's no, not any use to anybody trying to see what he did to do it that way because he can't show you. He just did it. Yeah, <laughs> so, it's amazing. He might, have, he might have done something about 20 times before he actually did that, um, but he, that was trial and error. Eventually he got there. Um, it's not afraid of technology. In fact, it's sort of, that's the area he's been working in, in the Navy. But, uh, um, you know, it, it, it's a, an acquired skill using mm. assistive technology, and that takes time. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So time, time is the biggest problem for dyslexics. There's never yeah. enough. <laughs> no, there's never enough. No. Is there anything you'd like to see change um, in the next five years or anything you'd like to say about um, the work that Square Pegs is doing in Tasmania before we sign tonight? Yes, just a, a little bit. The, the work they're doing in Tasmania is, is going well. Um, we need to recruit more people who are going to be facilitating more training on the, the ground, as it were. Um, I think... We have the strength could work on um, actually uh, uh, advocating for more change, and especially in terms of, I spoke briefly about the phonic screening check. Um, literacy in Tasmania has been a problem for many years or achieving a, a successful literacy rate amongst children in Tasmania. And it, it's appalling. It really is. And it, that has got to change. I would love to see um, Tasmania changing from the present way of teaching literacy, which is more like whole language. Uh, I'd love to see more phonics teaching and certainly advocate the screening at an early age. But we've got to train the teachers. We've got to give teachers more support. Um, the Department of Education are doing something which I think is quite innovative. The um, We have a grad cert um, for inclusive education, which we've campaigned for um, Chris Rayner, Dr. Rayner, who's the uh, head of inclusive education in the education faculty, the School of Education. Um, he's negotiated that the department pay for 25 teachers a year to do this grad cert. It's four modules and one of them is the dyslexia one. And they've just committed to, we've, we've had it funded three times already. Um, and we are um, going to run it now for them until at least 2023 Fantastic. which 
it's yes it is so there are more and more people being trained but we've got to train teachers the the b teach the ones before they go out we've got to teach them how to teach reading um how to teach it effectively how to to understand what understanding phonological awareness is to understand the mechanics of the language so that they're confident when they go out that they can teach children how to sort of decode and, and what sounds the importance of sounds are so i'd love to see us put more pressure on changing the system from within <coughs> excuse me um to actually get recognising that schools need more support. Uh, and yes, we've got 25 teachers a year being trained, but that's got to change even more within their own system. So the schools need more training. Um, whole school communities raising awareness. And I'd like to see that grow a bit more. We've got five um, parent family groups now, um, around the state, uh, I'd like to see those continue growing because people need that information. If the parents are skilled up, if they are aware, if they are informed, they can advocate far more successfully for their child. And if they advocate for their child, their child is seeing that advocating going on and that rubs off on them. So. You know, it's as an advocacy group, I think that is one of our strengths that we really need to work on. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's pretty much it at the moment. It's, it's <laughs> the big, big ask. So we've got to imp improve how we teach our, teach our teachers. We've got to improve the way we teach teachers how to teach reading. Um, and if square pegs can, can advocate for raising the awareness of dyslexia and getting it recognised uh, and then work on the rest of the things like funding some or working on getting in this recognition so that parents can get some support towards getting their kids identified. Um, <clears throat> So it's a, that's a small ask, isn't it? Really? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> uh, but you do you carry on with your good work. I think you know. So the more people like you that spring up, um, the little beacons of hope there. You know, to, uh, ten years ago, um, names in in dyslexia or in specific learning difficulties around Australia were few and far between. Um, now there are a lot more names springing to mind that you know people are doing things like Lorraine Hammond over in WA she's doing fantastic mm -hmm. things training schools um Sarah Assam in Bentley West she's doing amazing things her and uh, Steve Capps you know it's growing and it's got to grow it really has and South Australia you know sort of so I mean Tassie is a small state with a very small population but very big problems and unless we sort of make a stand those problems aren't going to go away so no they're not that's why um we're doing as much as we can to support Tassie because we want to make sure that you know they're getting as much support as they can down there because we know that there's a lot of literacy issues that they're facing yeah. 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 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was so wonderful to talk to you and to hear about your research and your students that you're working with and your family story around dyslexia and um, the work you're doing in Tasmania with Square Pegs and Chatters Matters. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Judith, and we look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Thank you very much, and I look forward to hearing more from you as well. Thank you. Thank you for now. Good night. Good night to you. If you would like to know more about the wonderful and thought-provoking research that Judith has undertaken, head to the Dear Dyslexic website, if you would like to find out more about Square Pegs, go to squarepegstaz.org. Also, if you haven't already done so yet, make sure you sign up to our mailing list so you can keep up to date with all the work that we are doing at the Foundation. Head to deardyslexic.com. And don't forget, if there's anything you've heard today that you've found distressing, you can contact Beyond Blue, 1300 226 or Lifeline 13 14. Thanks so much for joining us today and until next time, bye for now. Yeah.